Oh no, don't ever do that again. And All right, Ka well. And now Cash has that perfectly. Oh no, don't ever do that again for Don's voice to put in wherever he wants. <laughs> I know, right? Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Liftoff. Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. Live from Rome, I ordered Triplex videos. They sent me 30 videos. This is the award-winning Stamp Show Here Today, episode number 224. Brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center. This is Tom. This is Cash. This is Scott. This is Mark. And I'm your host, Don. What travels through the mail but is actually very stationary? Postal stationary. Oh, it's so bad. It is embarrassing. <laughs> That joke should be taken out and canceled. That's so bad. It's embarrassing. There's a note here that says LOL. Does that mean we should be laughing? We shouldn't laugh. That's just not worth it. <laughs> In general, postal stationery is handled similarly to postage stamps as they are sold at the post office, either at the face value or a small markup to cover the cost of the envelopes or cards. Should I say envelopes or envelopes? Yes. <laughs> I'll mix it up. Today, a 55 cent postal stationery envelope costs 62 cents to 69 cents, depending on how many you buy. So, if so you... you have to buy them in bulk, I guess. Yeah, the 62 cents is if you buy 500 of them. And 69 cents is if you just buy one. But that's... that's well, a, what if I buy 499? But that's a pretty hefty amount for an envelope. It is, considering the first class rate's 55 cents. Yeah. So you make 14 cents for an envelope? 7 cents. Oh. Well, it depends on how many you buy. Right. 7 cents or 14 cents. All right. So yeah, if you if you buy a postage lot, uh, every item in there is probably seven to fourteen cents more than is actually there. So if you if you bought a hundred bucks in face of envelopes, which I actually do quite often because I like you know the pre-stamped envelopes, it saves me from having to buy envelopes. But uh, I never realized the markup was that high. It hasn't always been that high. I think the I think the markup has been going up in recent years. Oh, well. I think forty or fifty years ago, them they only charged maybe a penny or two pennies for for the envelope. Well, that makes sense. I mean, if you have a five cent rate, you're not going to charge ten cents for an envelope. Yeah. No, but even even when the envelopes were fifteen or twenty cents face value, they were still only charging one or two cents an envelope. It makes sense. But how much is like a pack of envelopes? 
Oh, geez. If you buy them in the store. A thousand of them are like 12 bucks. You get a hundred of them at the 99 cent store for guess how much? A dollar fifty. So they're making so quite they're, a bit. So of they're money. really kind of raking you over the coals on this one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they are. Why buy them? It's the convenience factor because you can have your return address printed on there, and the and the the stamps already on there, so you're saving yourself a lot of time addressing and stamping envelopes. When AAA wants me to sign up, they send me free return stickers. Doesn't I take know. me any time, and mm-hmm. I don't pay for them. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So anyway, there's lots of different ways you can get your envelopes, too. You can get them with a window, without a window, with your return address printed, without your return address printed, completely blank. Window on the left, window on the right. Yep. No window on the left, no window on the right. I want a window in the back. Yeah, there you go. I want to... Those are called hospital gowns. I like the old-timey uh, windowed envelopes where they didn't actually have windows. They'd um, soak the paper in like a shape, in like an oil. They would make the uh, paper transparent or opaque or non-opaque. And uh, you would be able to read through it. Those are really hard to find now. Yeah, I find, you know, I go to Joel's in, uh, uh, at the Arcadia Stamp Show and he charges a buck and... Uh, invariably, you're always going to find one or two of them in there where they have the oil windowed envelopes, which yeah, they're kind of cool. They're interesting. I've never heard of such a thing. I've only seen a couple of them. Postal stationery can take the form of an official envelope for the use of some government department, or it can be issued by a military force for the use of its troops to write at home. In emergency situations, postal stationery has been produced by hand-stamping envelopes with modified canceling devices. Many of the rare Confederate postmasters' provisionals are of this form. They were also produced with huge modern machine cancelers to overprint envelopes in the 1940s. So what types of postal stationery are there? The postal services of many countries offer a form of letter sheet called an aerogram. This consists of a blank sheet of paper with folding instructions to make an origami envelope, and an adhesive flap and a prepaid postage stamp printed on the sheet for international airmail. Aerograms are preferred because they are lightweight, but as such, enclosures are not permitted. So at origami envelopes, you can fold them to look like swans or flowers and throw them in the mail? Or envelopes. Yeah. Novel idea. Get the one, you should get the ones that you can fold to look like a dragon for dawn. Oh, that'd be cool. It actually, oh, what? Dragon mail. Don, you have the one for the uh, Monkey King. I think it was from Bhutan, and they give you instructions on how to fold this stamp into a little monkey king. No, I don't have that. Yeah, you I do. do. I do. No, I don't. No. Marcel didn't sell that to you? I thought you no. had one. No, I don't have one of those. Oh, okay. Mm-mm. Now I know what no, to I've get got you the, for Christmas. The, 
Yeah, you do. Now I've got, uh, I have the book, and um, and I also have those um, um, perforated uh, sheets for like Year of the Dog and Year of the Monkey. Maybe that's what you're thinking of. Oh, okay. Is it really bad that the first thing that comes to mind is she doesn't need that? She already dates the Monkey King. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Just, I'm a bad man. Yeah, well, we love you anyways, Tom. And actually, Marcel made me watch the movie. It was pretty fun. And actually, the Monkey King is quite entertaining. Oh, it's a great movie. It's a great story. Mm-hmm. So speaking of letter sheets, before 1845, a correspondence was not enclosed in an envelope. Letters were sheets of paper that were folded, sealed, addressed, and postmarked. Postage may or may have not been paid. Yeah, I uh, go through this on my Relics of History. It's episode number three where I talk about, well, actually, I talk about it on two. I talk about the invention of the envelope and also the uh, fact that when letters were sent up until 1855, you might or might not have had to pay the stamp or pay the rate to mail the letter, and then the person on the other side may have uh, had to pay it. So uh, check that out if you can find it. It's on Podbean. If you if you're listening to this podcast, you can probably find relics of history. And this concludes our shameless plug. This letter sheet usage continued even after adhesive postage stamps were introduced. The popularity of folded letters led postal authorities to introduce stamped letter sheets. The first official postal stationery was an 1838 embossed letter sheet of New South Wales. These were followed by the Mulready sheet that was issued by Great Britain at the same time as the Penny Black in 1840. Yeah, I thought this was interesting, the first... Uh... Actually, there's an earlier one uh, all the way back from 1608 in Italy. But I didn't know that uh, letter sheets were actually fairly, not common, but fairly widely issued far, far before the, even the postage stamp was issued. Didn't we see one of those at Westpex? Yes, we did. Uh, um, Sismundo had some on his Yes. Tail. That's what I thought. The, yeah, I remember seeing the those. AQ letter sheets. I think we, I forget where in Italy they're from. Italy didn't exist in 1608. Um, I think it was. I'm I'm not certain. I think it was Venice, but I'm I'm probably you know this is open for cash correction. My my guess would be Venice or Sardinia. Yeah, somewhere. What is AQ? I want to say Venice. It, it was. They're just called AQ sheets because if you look at the top, it's a sheet of paper, and then it has some pre-printed stuff on the top with a big letter A and a big letter Q, and I forget what the AQ stands for. But if you see it, I mean, I'm guessing it's something in Italian. I'm guessing you are correct. <laughs> so anyway, they usually, you know, nowadays you look at it and they had the, uh, they have a stamp on them, but back then, like the Mulready sheet did not have a stamp on it. It was a printed all around in the uh, New Zealand one actually was just a sheet of paper with a big embossing in the center of it and like I said the Italian one was a sheet of uh, sheet of paper with AQ and then a bunch of writing in Italian that I can't read on it and postal cards not postcards Ooh, what's the difference Postal cards are postal stationery and usually have a printed or embossed stamp like picture for prepaid postage. 
if you don't know what a postcard is, turn off the podcast. You are not allowed to listen anymore. That's a lie. You're still allowed to listen. <laughs> no, please listen. <laughs> please. Postcards were printed not by the post office. And they do not have, they do not come with their postage already printed on them. Well, that's the biggie. Right. Which, by the way, somebody was talking about butterflies and moths. I found out what the difference between a butterfly and a moth are. The wings. Yes. One of them, when they're sitting, the wings are closed. The butterfly closes its wings and a moth has them opened. Yes. And also, butterflies have antennas and moths have feathery things. Yes. And also, uh, butterflies eat in the daytime and not in the nighttime, and moths eat in the nighttime, not the daytime. Now you're making things up. Nope. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. You got me on one of them. Sorry. (laughs) I give up. I quit. Oh, by the way, did you see the new um, the frog stamps? Oh, yeah. They just came out. Yeah, they came out two days ago. They're cool. Now, are they going to have postal cars with the frog designs on them? Oh, I wish. They won't advertise them, but they might exist. Because a lot of times they produce the postal cards, at least nowadays, will have the very similar design to commemorative stamps that are currently an issue. Yeah, they did that all the time. And, oh, yeah. and now it's very rare that you see it. I mean, I remember the Legends of the West sheet also had the Legend of the West postcards and the postal Olympics. Cards. Or postal cards. And the Olympics and no, there a are a lot. lot of them. Yeah. And I haven't seen any of them lately. I, I should, well, we should check and see if they do it, but I don't well, think they do we anymore. We can check the new issue listings. But I do know there were some on there. I haven't checked yeah. it recently, so I don't know if this one is one of those. But it would make a good, it would make a good uh, topical. Yeah. Frogs are popular. But post postcards and postal cards are not, popular anymore they were very popular around the turn of the cent- turn of the 19th to 20th centuries well postal cards are harder to store than a stamp because they're obviously much much larger no but i mean they're they're not as popular with the mailing public oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean uh, cards were more uh when i get a popular book- in the 19 teens 1920s well, in that time period, um, you didn't have a telephone. Right. And they had multiple deliveries per day in the large cities. So for a cent, you could mail a postcard to a person like at 9 o'clock in the morning. They'd get it about noon. They'd turn around and give you your reply at about 1 o'clock, and you'd get it at about 2.30. So you could invite them to dinner. Oh, yeah. There were lots of and stories. They would, and, they would, and you'd have their RSVP before they showed up. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are lots of stories where people would use postcards at one cent each. Oh, yeah. Instead of telephones. And especially, like, uh, inside of downtown areas where they have the trolley systems, you could have the postcard delivered, you know, within half an hour to an hour. So you could carry on a conversation on the back of postcards. So, Don, when was the first postal card made? The world's first postal card was produced by Austria-Hungary. 
In January 1869, Dr. Emanuel Hermann of Vienna, a professor of economics, Yay. implemented the idea in on October 1st, 1869, the Austrian post office issued the world's first official postal card. The postal card was a great success, and around two and a quarter million postcards were sold within the first three months. Wow, that's a lot. Those are postal cards. Postal cards. Got to be very specific here. Otherwise, we'll do Don's corrections. Yes. We don't have enough time for that. <laughs> Later in 1870, Great Britain, Finland, Switzerland, and Württemberg all produced postal cards. The United States produced the first postal card in 1873. Postcards, on the other hand, are cards prepared by private companies that do not have prepaid postage. They are frequently illustrated with pictures or printed advertisements. They are generally not considered postal stationery. The first commercially produced card was created in 1861 by John P. Carleton of Philadelphia, who patented a postcard and sold the rights to Hyman Lipman, whose postcards, complete with a decorative border, were labeled Lipman's Postal Cards. These cards had no images, but had a corner note. Yes, the, he called them postal cards, but they're actually postcards. And these are interesting. It is a card, and it's got an all-over printing of like a mesh. It has a spot that says uh, place postage here up in the corner. Actually, I'm sorry. It says uh, place, place your postage stamp. And on the left side, it says Lipman Postal Card. And the reason why I'm describing this, and pull, go to our website and you can see a picture of it, these guys sell for about $2,000 each if you can find one. And when I saw that, I went, wow, that's incredible. And they, it was sold in the Siegel stamp auction for two grand. And the one I'm looking at are green. And Tom will put it on the uh, website at stampshowheretoday.com to check it out. Look at it, burn it into your memory, and then go and let's try to find these things because they are out there. So the one that sold for $2,000 doesn't even have a stamp on it. Yeah, it's not even used. I wonder, how, I didn't even look and see how much the used ones are selling for but because there weren't any shown. Oh, and just to be clear, it doesn't say place your postage stamp. Here it says place for postage stamp. Oh, place for, po yeah, you're right. Yeah. So you can place somebody else's there if you want. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I love that it says patent applied for. Yeah. <laughs> the piece of paper with a decorative border. You're going to patent it. Mm-hmm. Now, stamped envelopes. The most commonly collected postal stationery is the stamped envelope. Like everything else, Britain made the first stamped envelope in 1842. In the USA, in August of 1852, an act of the U.S. Congress was passed to provide suitable letter envelopes with such watermarks or other guards against counterfeits, with the addition of the value or denomination of the postage stamps so printed or impressed thereon. Fancy. Yeah, congressional language. This resulted in 
1853 Nesbitt issues of stumped envelopes, named after the contractor who produced them for the government. Considering the different envelope sizes, knives, colors, dies to print the indica, back stamps, and denominations, there were dozens of different stamped Nesbitt envelopes produced for the U.S. Dozens. So, Scott, what is a knife? A knife is a sharp metal instrument form um, like a cookie cutter. It's in the shape of the paper for the envelope when it's uh, completely unfolded. And they take the knife, they take that form like a cookie cutter and they press it into around 300 to 500 sheets at a time. And they, and it just, the pressure cuts right through the paper, uh, leaving these, um, unfolded envelopes it's like die cutting it's an older form of die cutting and it and then they have a machine that folds them all up and glues certain edges and assembles the envelope in that manner so a knife is the so the different knives would be different shapes or sizes uh for the cutting of these unfolded envelopes so does each different size have a different knife or can uh, the same sizes have different knives with different cutting. No, it would be a different knife. I mean, it can actually be the same shape and just a different size, but it's still considered a different knife. Now, is the is the flap where they varied the the design of the envelope? Not necessarily. It could be in the um, the angles of the of the edges. Uh, which would produce either longer or stubbier flaps. Um, and as long as they overlap properly in the back, uh, really didn't, you know, they were interchangeable. But I want to say there were about eight different sizes, eight or nine different sizes that they used. And this was in the 20th century. I don't, I'm not entirely sure how many they used in the 19th century. I don't have that book. But... Uh, well, since I mentioned books, um, I have a, a book. It's called Catalog of 20th and 21st Century Stamped Envelopes and Wrappers of the United States. And that's by Don Undersander of the United Postal Stationery Society. And I'm assuming since it specifies 20th and 21st century that there's also one of the 19th century, but I don't have that. And then I also have a catalog of United States stamp, stamped envelope essays and proofs. And that's going to have more of the 19th century stuff in it, but it's also not going to be the actual envelopes. It's going to be, like I said, the dies, the uh, essays and proofs and things before they were issued. So I know uh, I have two books, and I, I'm sure there's a third book out there, and I just don't have it uh, at hand. Well, one thing, the, the essays and proofs, there are also specimens. Right, those are included in that. And specimens were a different story because specimens were not for determining the design of the envelopes. Specimens were sent out to everybody so that the print shops could figure out what size they were going to print stuff on them. So you got a lot of specimens that were shipped out to people 
who were testing them, sort of like uh, right, because you would you would have your the the government would have the envelopes manufactured, the the postal stationary envelopes would be manufactured, and then if when you ordered them you wanted your return address printed on them, then uh, then they would go to a printer, and they would print them right on the envelopes. Or advertising envelopes. Or advertising. But but the envelopes would generally already be folded when that printing was done. So that's why they had the specimens so they could send it to the printer so the printer could set up their printing press so that it would print the required information in the proper spot. And they have specimens even today. They have specimens that they ship off to people. Yes, and sometimes specimens were sent to the Universal Postal Union as uh, examples which could be sent to other countries. Yeah, that too, yeah. So there's there's multiple uses for specimens. They basically just overprinted it specimen to try to keep people from using them well, for postage because yeah, they were giving them away for free. Sometimes it was printed, sometimes it was hand-stamped. Uh, but yeah, the, the whole that's a whole other topic. Yeah. <laughs> So that's what a knife is. The manufacture of wrappers for sending newspapers is also part of postal history. They began in the U.S. in 1861. And again, uh, I don't know if they're called knives or not, but there are different sizes. Some are narrow, some are wide, some are taller, some are uh, shorter, depending on the size of the newspaper. Yeah, a lot of them. And uh, there's maybe half, five or six different sizes. I've seen wrappers where they were wrapped around whatever they were wrapped around, you know, probably a pamphlet or something. They might have wrapped around it four or five times. You have this really super, you have this really super thick wrapper because it's doubled over so many times. And then other times you will have the wrapper that goes around and it's really nice and super clean and pretty because it was on a larger item. So uh, these are very interesting because well, first of all, wrappers were universally thrown away. Well, you think about it, a newspaper usually gets rolled up, and that's what the wrapper was for. You'd roll up the newspaper, and then you'd wrap the... It would be like a band that you would wrap around it, and then it would have the gummed uh, gummed edge on it, and so you would just stick it down. And it came because a lot of people got their newspapers, especially if you didn't live in the city... Your newspaper came in the mail. It wasn't delivered by a newspaper delivery boy. And they got special rates, too. They did get special rates. But just like the postal stationery, they would have the printed stamp on the wrapper, and they would make them that way and sell them to the newspaper companies to send them newspapers all over the country. Like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times might be delivered to California, or it might be delivered to you know, the next city over. But they they did get special rates for bulk mailing a lot of these newspapers. An interesting side for these wrappers is the uh, that first newspaper wrapper is actually the first newspaper stamp. And afterwards, the newspaper stamps that you see in the Scott's catalog, they actually were accounting paper. They didn't actually mail newspapers after the first four stamps 
first four stamps they'd glue onto the outside of like a bag of newspapers. Well, actually, they were tied in bundles with twine, and then the 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 large actual newspaper stamps were then affixed, and they were usually canceled with a, a brush or yeah, paintbrushes, paintbrush, like yeah. But when you get to the actual newspaper stamps, where you know it's a one stand stamp, five stand, those were actually the person would come in with a book and say, okay. We sent 422 newspapers. I owe you $4.22. And they go, okay, let me lick these stamps in here. And they put them into their, like, a receipt book. And so newspaper stamps, uh, after, I think it's PR7. PR7 is the eight. two, eight. PR8 is the two, uh, the first two cent stamp. No. One through eight are the large designs. Okay, one through then it's PR nine PR is nine. the two cent stamp. So from PR nine on, those are accounting paper. Those are not uh, actually put onto newspaper stamps. Whereas the wrappers and the very first big giant newspaper stamps were actually used to mail newspapers. Well, not only that, those extra large newspaper stamps many times were not canceled. They were just affixed to the top of the package or the bundle of newspapers. And it would have been thrown away, or it either would have gone with the top newspaper or it would have been thrown away. Well, I read that they usually had a bag that they put it in and they stuck it on the bag. And it would still get thrown away. Well, well, the, yeah, the there bag are, would there get, are very the few would get reused, and they there are very few used copies. Most of which are uh, faulty to some extent. Oh yeah. Oh, who's the uh, Doctor Pepper? Doctor Doc, Doc, Doc Pepper. Doc Pepper. Yeah. Doc Pepper. If you uh, go online and uh, Google Doc Pepper, Doc Pepper newspaper stamps. He has a census of used large newspaper stamps, and I think there's only there's less than thirty of them. But no, I, there's there's more than that now. I know I've added two. Oh. Or t- I've added two or three to his census. Oh, congratulations. But, but um, yeah, they are quite unusual and, and uh, quite rare. Yeah. Well, beyond the beyond PR9, you, there are some that were canceled with a blue brush. Well, yeah, again, they were in they were in books. Right. And so, you know, you would line up all the stamps to pay the account and then they just take the brush and Right across all right of the across. stripe, stripe all the stamps or pen or something like that. Well, but well, but generally yeah. it was a blue brush, yeah, uh, because that's what they had in the in the accounting offices, and uh, those are actually premium. That's a premium cancel, actually. Yeah, they also have them where they have cancellations from Boston, and they, these w- certain cancels are more common, and that's simply because. That happened to be where the accounting books that got out came from. And very few of those accounting books got out. Right. But, like you said, like the one of the more com- – there more books came out of Boston than just about anywhere else. Yeah. So that's why you see a lot of Boston cancels. Just to uh, follow up real quick on your books that you mentioned. Yes. There is a U.S. 19th century stamped – envelopes and wrappers and they came out with a 2018 edition oh so uh the most recent edition of the 20 and 21st century is a 2017 edition ah and you yeah, can get mine's both. the older 2011 edition but yeah you can get both of them at the um the stationary society's website they're 65 bucks each ah. for non-members 
52 if you remember. So consider joining if you collect postal stationery. I yeah, used to if be you're going to buy if you're going to buy all the books, it's probably worthwhile to pay for a year's membership cuz your discount will be more than what your membership will cost. Oh yeah. I uh, used to collect postcards. I love the postcards, all the varieties, all the recuts, all the there's various flaws and color varieties and stuff. The Scott's catalog, you know, gives sort of a gloss over the top of them, but there are so many postcard varieties that are really cool to sun, or to search for. And uh, there is also a book, I did not grab it off the shelf, but there is a book for postal cards as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, one thing to bring up is uh, today most people collect the entires. Yes. Especially of postcards. Postcards that are cut to shape, you know, have the stamps cut out, those are virtually valueless. But um, there's a lot of people who still collect um, well, they're not envelopes. They're not valueless as cut squares, but they're just out of favor. What postcard cut squares? Well, postcard cut squares are Junk. really a no-no. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Uh, you mean postal card? The po- yes, postal, postal, postal card. cards. Yeah. The uh, the envelope cut squares. A lot of them. So there are some issues you can only get as a cut square because no end tires are known. They're so, they're just such a rare item. Uh, but um, there's there's actually three ways you can collect it. You can collect the entire envelope. You can collect a cut square, which is just the corner around the pre-printed stamp. And then there's the full corner, which actually includes the back of the envelope as well as the front of the envelope. It's basically a cut square, but it, you haven't taken off the the back yet. Yeah. And, and those have a premium for those, some reason that right. I have no idea why. Well, they're more desirable because it shows that you have not trimmed the item on two sides. Yeah, okay. And so it, it actually shows you the placement of how close to the corner was the uh, embossed stamp. And that, you know, when, when you're looking at it, you want to ideally you want large margins all the way around and you want them balanced because that makes it more attractive. But in many cases, that embossed item is pushed up into the corner such that if you did make it balanced, it would be really tiny and it wouldn't look that great. And you really, you want to get a little bit larger of a space. So by having the full corner, you're showing that you can't get any more on those two sides. And the more recent catalogs uh, allow a 41 by 41 millimeter square. And so I see a lot of a lot of that particular size. Oh, I go 42 by 42. 42? <laughs> oh, yeah. That extra yeah. millimeter yeah, but just it, means uh, everything to but me. But if, if you cut a full corner and you cut it to that size, a lot of times your, your, your embossing will be off-center because you'll have one or two sides where it's, it's not going to balance out. Right. Yeah, so, if it's a smaller indicia than... Right. Yeah. Or if it's squished up into the corner. And that's where having the full corner showing that is uh, makes it the premium item. Oh. Now, some cut squares are cut from envelopes that were pre-printed. Yeah, and a lot. Of, and if it's a smaller size envelope, a lot of times that means it'll just be a little bit uh, squished on that side, a little less margin on that side if it's a long return address. Yeah, I noticed that on U-185, um, a lot of those, that's the 7-cent Stanton, a lot of them will have a very small margin on the left side. They probably came from a large uh, 
uh, request printing where it had the return address, and they they were just all cut to get rid of the return address. Right. Hmm. You say there's a well, fourth one. Yeah. Well, there's th- yeah. There's an extremely un- current uh, in today's market. It's extremely uh, undesirable. It's where you would cut the 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 embossed item to shape, meaning there's no extra white paper around the outside. And this is important because some of the really early albums would have spaces for these items in them, and they might have a square or an oval or something like that that was just big enough to put the embossed indicia. And so since that's what the album showed, that's what people would do. They would either cut it to shape right to the edge of the design, or they would cut it in an oval just just barely clearing the design. And a lot of old collections, you'll see these round medallions or ovals with the postal stationary indicia, and it's like, those are just not attractive. And But that's the way they collected them because that's what the album showed. And nobody really had any idea of what they wanted, so they kind of followed what the album showed them. Yeah, well, they hinged mint stamps back then and everything else. Well, <laughs> but nowadays... The album said it. It must be true. Yeah. Nowadays, we're snobs, and we prefer f- complete envelopes. And if we can't get complete envelopes, then full corners. And if we can't get full corners, then cut squares. And uh, if we can't get cut squares, well, then we'd prefer to have a blank space than get a cut to shape. <laughs> well, I remember a friend of the show, Stanley Piller, who is a dealer uh, up in uh, Sacramento area. He brought a album in Oakland, Oakland area. He brought an album in from 1863, and not only did it have spaces for the cut to shape, um, but it also on the facing page instructed you how to glue the stamps in and what type of glue is best for gluing your stamps in. Yes, it was. Yes. Uh, Iron glue. Iron glue, yeah. And, uh, the that glue w- that cannot be undone. <laughs> that, that was an interesting one. <laughs> There's no soaking that stuff off. Nope. Yep. That stuff's there on the page forever. I know one of the big challenges for uh, postal stationery is the fact that the envelopes came in different colors. Yes, the paper on the envelope is another thing, another variation. Um, you know, in stamps, we have different shades of an issue well in addition to the shades you also have lots of different paper colors and textures you have wove paper you have manila paper you have laid you can have laid paper it's either wove laid or manila laid Uh, lots of different types of paper then you have the coloring of the papers you can have um, oriental buff and cream and amber and and white and blue and all sorts of different colors as well. And through the years, the the paper manufacturers uh, were, let's just say, inconsistent in their shading of the the papers. And so, uh, because the contract would specify a color, but it wouldn't say 
it doesn't say Pantone number 227. Right. Can you get this sort of (laughs) buff-like? Yeah. Okay, define buff. Okay, it's a little bit different. And just like mixing shades of ink back in the 1800s, you know, if it was cloudy on that day or or whatever, you get a little slightly different color on your paper. But um, So we try and group them as best we can into definable shades, but... Uh, a buff from one era might be an amber in a different era or a cream. And it, it, so it can be confusing, but um, that's where good references and uh, good imaging uh, for those you can't get references of comes yeah, you, into play. You absolutely need references on this stuff because telling buff from oriental buff from orange is impossible unless you actually have references. It's, it's not impossible, but it is damn close. <laughs> <laughs> you have to you have to be spot on. And that's one of the things that makes collecting postal stationery so much of a challenge, especially for a beginner and even an intermediate level collector, is that these papers are so confusing. I mean, what is Oriental Buff? What is it? Well, it's actually a pinkish kind Orange-ish. of pinkish orange color. <laughs> yeah. uh, you wouldn't have guessed that. But so it's kind of like lake. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's it's one of those things where you kind of have to you have to get an education, and then you have to get examples. And the best uh, there used to be uh, available all the time actual examples of envelopes that had been cut up the tascos to provide yeah. samples and you just don't see them in the market anymore they're extremely hard to find and when you do they're usually not in great condition and they're not cheap and they're not cheap yeah. now you can make your own and you can do a pretty good job of it if you've got a, a wide variety of stuff to choose your samples from. Well, but then you have to have a person who has the sample and say, okay, here's all my stamps, which one, or here's all my envelopes, which ones match. I mean, right. that's basically what I do. I have a really, well, obviously here, you know, we have to have it because we're a PSE, but my color samples were chosen by a person who was an expert with paper. And when we were picking them out, it was difficult because I'd have 10 buffs and he'd say, use this one. Right. This is buff. These right. are not. Right. Yet they still qualify as buff yeah, when, exactly. we, when, we, when we catalog them or assign them the catalog number. But they're just not. It's, it's like when you choose shades of a stamp. You want to choose the best example of the shade knowing that, yeah, that's what you're going for. Not every example is going to meet it, but that's what you're going for. And that's the example that you really want to have in your collection. Now, speaking of shades, there's a, uh, a real issue with U66 and U67. Uh, both are on buff paper. Well, hold one on, hold is, on. What are they? Tell well, everybody. Yeah, this is a, uh, this is a uh, nine cent um, on buff. And one is lemon on buff, and the other is orange on buff, and there's vastly different catalog values for them. And so there's a lot of people that would have a U67 and sell it as a U66 because, hey, it looks like lemon. 
but actually because the, it's on orange paper, right? Because it's on an orange <laughs> paper, but it actually the the U sixty six actually has kind of a greenish tinge to the ink mm-hmm. instead of. Um, well, that, that's actually not. That's more of a trick of the eye, right? Uh, than anything else. If you look at the ink separately, and if you get high enough magnification, you can kind of weed out areas of the paper and just focus on the ink. It tr- it really is a true lemon color, and the lemon color will have a slightly greenish appearance to it. That's what makes it so unique. But, uh, yeah, the, the background will kind of fool your eye, and the, that's one of the things you have to be careful about these colored papers is that it can warp your perception of the shade of the stamp. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because of U67. Gosh, that looks lemon to me. <laughs> The other thing is uh, U67 can be altered to simulate U66, so you also have to be very careful with that. Or chemically altered? Uh-huh. Well, it looks like we lost Don, so Tom, you want to take us out of this? Sure. Um, one last thing real quick. Uh, the website for the... Um, Oh, I went off their page. For the United Postal Stationery Society is www.upss.org. If anyone did want to go and check out their books or their publications, they have a lot of them. They are a fantastic organization if you're interested. So. And they get way out into the technical stuff. Oh, yeah. But, <laughs> but it's fun technical stuff, and it's also treasure-finding technical stuff. Yes. But it's still really technical. Oh, yeah. And to collect these things, you don't have to be that technical. But it gives you an idea of how far you can take it. And it actually allows you to learn the basics so that you can just be like a general collector. And you don't have to collect all the knives and all all the, you know, really technical variations, printing varieties and things like that. You just get one on the, you know the big visually uh, different things, the different colored papers and the different uh, values and and colors. Well, I think that wraps it up for us today. You've been listening to Stamp Show here today, episode number 224. This was Tom. This was Cash. This was Scott. This was Mark. One new voice message and one saved message. New message. You have been listening to the award-winning Stamp Show here today, brought to you by the Nevada Philatelic Research Library. Produced and edited by Cash Breakfast, with engineering and recording by Tom Schilling, research by Scott Murphy and Mark Leon, and I am your host, Don Doss. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or Podbean, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com, and thank you for listening. To replay this message, Press 1. To delete, press 7. To save, press 9. Message saved. There are no more messages. Main menu.
service and the lower cost. Fewer mistakes, no time ever lost. A lot less handling along the way. No damage for you to pay. You know you gotta have a zip code. Yeah, you're not beyond the one. A zip code, yeah, you know you wanna have a A zip code, yeah, you're more than well down. And everything will be alright when meet a fella called Mr. Zip. What he can do for you will really make you flip. So, so if you have any further postal demands, we're gonna leave you in his hands. You know you gotta have a zip code. Yeah, you got a zip code. A zip code. A zip code. And everything will be alright. And now, my friend, we'll say so long. We hope our zip code song. We told you everything we know. It's up to you to make zip code go. You know you gotta have a zip code. Show here today. Stamp collecting happens.